One of the biggest disappointments that people experience is when they thought that there was some situation in which their society had their back, and it doesn't. Government is as good as we make it, and technology is one of the things that we can use to build a government that serves us all and is inclusive and makes us all feel like we are really part of a robust civic sphere that's for all of us. You're listening to Unintended Consequences, the podcast that explores how systems become large and complex and how they change the lives of everyone they touch. I'm Kim Harrison, team sociologist. I'm Yos Graham, software wrangler. And I'm Heidi Waterhouse, transformation advocate. We work at LaunchDarkly, the feature management platform that gives you more control over your code and how it gets delivered. Unintended Consequences is brought to you by HeavyBit, an accelerator and venture fund dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. This is the second part of our conversation with Sid Harrop. Her new book is called A Civic Technologist's Practice Guide. What are the most common kinds of failure that you see in projects? Obviously, this kind of giant inflated procurement problem is one, but even the well-intentioned ones that seem to be, you know, keeping their costs down, where do you see these things hitting the rocks often? A big one, uh, you know, one that's dear to me is uh, they haven't been able to do any research. And so it doesn't actually work. That is a huge and common piece that is tragically avoidable. (laughs) And so I think, you know, that's interesting because it doesn't match up to our ideals of scale. Typically, research is done one-on-one or one-on-small group um, and then used to you know, draw inferences about what the larger group needs, which may or may not then be supported when you get to a point where you can measure something at a bigger scale with analytics or a technique like that. People don't agree on what it should be, actually. So, a new administration comes in and good night. That happens all the time, and it's a real caution um, on the timescale piece to work with the less political parts of government a lot of the time. Yeah. (laughs) Seen a bunch of good projects get killed that way. (laughs) But, Ash, let's go back to the research for a moment just to clarify, because people might not be aware of the kinds of research you're talking about here and what that looks like in practice. Could you give us a, a brief snippet of what that kind of research is? Right. Uh, So my core discipline is user research, meaning mostly actual observational research of people trying to use some technology product. And what that tends to do is give you the whys and wherefores of what is wrong with your product. So analytics can really identify the whens and, you know, what was happening at the time that the problem happened but it can't tell you anything about the motivations or the context in which somebody is using it. I think some of the trickiest, you know, having documents that download in Word, guess what? Many people don't have Word these days. Having fillable PDFs as a stepping stone to online forms, very, very hard to do on a mobile phone. And if you go and meet people who are waiting in line to fill out those forms and see them try to do it on a phone, you'll easily see, can't do this. This doesn't make any sense. Often, actually, the piece of benefits eligibility that I think is really sticky usability-wise is how people report their financial situation. So I know the Code for America group working on GetCalFresh has worked on this a lot. Um, When people have income from gig work um, for delivery driving or something, they don't have a sort of, hey, look at your last pay stub and tell us how much you make every month. It's, you know, give us an estimated profit and loss And so helping people 
ask those questions in a way that people will actually give the right answers, especially on things where it's, you know, under penalty of perjury that you have to give your answers. It's a really good idea. Yeah, that's kind of terrifying. I would just choose to not report. That would really be a deterrent for me to participate in whatever that thing is. Yeah, the the, the threat of legal action. Huge deterrent. I mean, but that's one of the policy pieces. Gotcha. Yeah. Like, well, we want people to take this really seriously, so we're going to have them swear. Mm-hmm. But then you engender this terror of getting something wrong, especially if you're in a situation where it's not easy to just say, yeah, my income is the thing on my last paycheck. Definitely have a number of things like that in the court space where I often work. You know, the paperwork in court cases is really scary, even if we're talking about the civil justice system, which is mostly where I work. But for people who sort of switch off and go, oh, the criminal justice system is more exciting. Civil justice includes everything about family law, from child custody to divorce to domestic violence restraining orders. It includes eviction. It includes guardianship and, um, you know, bringing a suit against a neighbor in a small claims court. All those things are civil justice and You are not guaranteed representation in any of those kinds of cases. And so there are really tricky usability things with the way to ask questions. And in a lot of cases, it's part of the law or part of the rules of court that they have to be asked in certain terms. And those are not necessarily the terms that are clear to somebody who doesn't have a lawyer or even, you know, somebody who isn't a native English speaker or is English speaking with a reading level. So it ties into actually one of my favorite aspects of civic tech to do with opening up different kinds of contributor roles, which is writing. Mm. You know, so many people think I can't do civic tech, I can't contribute because I don't code. And it's like, no, that's not the most difficult language. Programming (laughs) languages are not the most difficult languages we deal with in civic tech. By the way, I couldn't say because I don't code myself. So (laughs) (laughs) I find code so much easier to wrangle, mainly because it's unambiguous. You know, if there's ambiguity then there's a flaw in the programming language that's a bug. Whereas writing English, that you want to be sure that people understand, just English, I'm not even dealing with <laughs> any of the other languages. And so the role of content designer, as it's now called, if you want to go into that a bit more. I don't know of a civic tech team that's strong that doesn't have content designers as a key part of it. And that is probably not true of every team in the private sector. You tend to see it more in marketing teams or, um, you know, very specific sectors. But communicating this between the government experts in a particular policy or service and the public users who are often not experts in the policy or service is really, really hard. And we spend an enormous amount of time on plain language, better language, um, language that actually works for people. It's vital. I imagine one of the frustrations with research is talking to people who have misunderstood what laws apply to them, what their situation is. Yes, Um, that can be heartbreaking. And I worked on this study last year where people were trying to get unemployment benefits and we were trying to report to policymakers. And one of the biggest disappointments that people experience is when they thought that there was some situation in which their society had their back and it doesn't. So in the context of the pandemic, everybody thought that they would be able to get unemployment. It's an obvious situation where government steps in to help. And, uh, You know, when talking about America's small government movement, I often say there is some situation in which you believe the government should assist you. 
even if it's pointing the right way out of town when a storm is coming in. And sometimes some people have a really hard time imagining themselves in a situation where they would need more common types of assistance from the government. But really, people do nearly all have a fundamental belief that as a society, we should help each other out. And when the pandemic appeared, um, one of the, I think, most consensus points (laughs) where we would all say, Government help is needed here for many, many people, and they couldn't get it. It was intensely painful, whether that was a first experience or a re-experience, to see that help not arrive. The help that did arrive was very, very welcome. It did an enormous amount for the people who were able to get it for the amount of time that they had it before things started changing to get people sort of forced to come back to work in some cases before it was safe to do so and having to make difficult choices because of that or benefits ran out. You know, when it comes down to it, Kim was asking at the beginning of why would you do this? Yeah. (laughs) This is a reason why, you know, if we can help fulfill that promise, make it more real by using some of these skills we've come by one way or another, it's enormously appealing. Also highlights certainly what was so disappointing to me about the pandemic response in America and even like Britain, which had a, mostly had a terrible pandemic, got this better, was messaging, a complete lack of coordinated messaging that should have been driven from the top down through, you know, state and city level and could have helped so much. I, it's so funny. I think, you know, several times during the pandemic, I've exchanged messages with our colleague, uh, Cordelia Yu, about what the messaging ought to have looked like, right? At Thanksgiving last year, the guys from Queer Eye should have been in masks touring the White House with the First Lady, showing how she was creating a distant celebration that they were going to do on Zoom. And that is a communication at scale failure, which is a whole nother category of really interesting thing. But that tends to be the kind of failure that we often see, you know, the egotistical tech types come in and say, oh, we can solve that. We should come up with a way to solve that. There's an app. We'll come up with something that can can solve this that is way beyond the typical comprehension of what happens at this scale. Yeah. You know, one of the the really interesting cases maybe to think about is uh, Nextdoor which was intended for, you know, neighborhoods to communicate with each other and grew into something that really perpetuated racism in the U.S. through this sort of encouragement of people to report things that they thought were out of order and encouragement of white people in particular to better safe than sorry, report things, call police, do all of this. And they have taken some steps to address it, but if you want to consider... It's a public civic sphere thing, kind of, with a private company, with the government not involved, but calling on government resources to oppress certain people, supported by this technology that was theoretically intended to do something else. It's a real nest of what we're talking about today. Yeah, exactly. Like, because government is used to thinking about my constituents are everybody, not just, I don't know, teenagers that like to post photos, but it's everybody. (laughs) Right. It's my entire community. Like, I love Instagram. Some people are blind. It's not exactly the funnest thing for them. You know, there are things that are for fun. But yes, if this is stepping in to a space that maybe is more for government, like government is used to thinking about, but who is this for? Yeah. Well, we hope and is doing a better job thinking about it. I love how you talked about, you know, there are places where everybody expects that government will serve them, that government will have their back. 
and so much of what government does is between the cracks, is between the lines of what people think government does. You know, you have this mental image of all the ways that government works, and most people don't realise the vast majority of government interaction is not in those groups, right. is not in those topics, you know? Right. And, the, you know, the idea of government efficiency is really interesting with this idea that, you know, government can step in to support us in any type of crisis well, it's a lot harder if the government is at a bare-bones staffing level because we don't want to pay taxes to support government at a resilient level of staffing with backups. The topics that I would love to discuss further or for you to go into further, I mean, there's a quote here. One of your quotes, actually, from the book is, I focus on principles and sets of questions to help technologists find the right way to do the most good, starting with finding the people already doing the work. That was one of the major problems that we see in civic tech, is that people who are eager turn up and jump in, imagining that nobody else is there already. And quite often, there are loads of people who are doing for ages. Yes. And often, if the shiny tech people look shiny and seem exciting and innovative, mm -hmm. they get way more attention than the people who've been working for years. It's a huge problem. If you could give advice to people listening who are either interested in civic tech or making private commercial tech better, what advice would you give them? Find the people doing the work. You know, that is a single piece of advice. And don't offer that you are doing something cool and new and you want their help. Offer to help them. Find out what they need. And it's vanishingly rare that there isn't somebody doing the work. Um, they may not be a technologist. They may not see themselves as working in technology, but there is almost certainly somebody working on a issue and nearly always somebody with a similar idea. And sometimes it's really interesting to find the people who had the idea a few years ago and tried to make it go and it wouldn't. What happened? And what, you know, what are the conditions that have changed that make you think you might be more successful now? But just generally taking a perspective that not that you are a super smart person because you know technology, but that you have a cool and valuable skill that you can put at the service of somebody's mission that you align with, um, which I think is a very different posture from we are the smart people who can come in and solve things. Absolutely. The humility in that makes a huge difference, especially when dealing with people who have been in government for ages. The thing I often think about that is common amongst all the civic tech movements I've seen is they found the civil servant who's been there for 20 years, who knows the lay of the land, and most importantly, knows which threats are the important ones. Yes. Right? Yes, and convinced that person that they were worth investing time and political capital in. Yeah. You know, usually by showing humility and showing capability and exciting them about possibilities. I love meeting those people. I, you know, they have so many amazing stories and I learned so much from my public servant partners. Talking about partners, Heidi had a question. What would make regulation more of a partner than a constraint? Because people think government, they think regulation and it's difficult to get anything done. And what are these heavy things that are constantly getting in the way of me needing to operate at the pace that I think is appropriate? Right. So... Regulation sits sort of midway in the stack of government rules. You probably have a statute that underlies a regulation, and uh, the regulation probably has interpretations and guidance for people that sort of lie on top of it. So figuring out 
what animal you're actually dealing with. You know, if it's guidance, then the local secretary or head of agency or whatever might have the ability to change it. If it's regulation, it might take more than that. If it's statute, then you have to work with the letter. And we're once again, kind of out of the realm of technology and into, you know, political advocacy and lobbying, which is sometimes a negative word, but talking to members of staffs to get a rule change. The only way I know to work well with compliance and regulation people is to accept that all of this is well-intentioned and has a good purpose. And then with that in mind, to be able to show why it is or isn't serving that purpose in this particular way and ask the people who know how it works and how to build it, what options we have for how to make that change. You know, there are techniques from technology like building a prototype that shows how something could be different that can be really useful in that process, mm-hmm. but it isn't a technical process. Mm, interesting. I mean, if you think about, you know, an agile multidisciplinary team, what it might look like in the private sector, when government, it should almost always involve compliance from the beginning. Maybe they don't come to every standup, but maybe you check in with them once a week. Mm-hmm. We're thinking of doing something that involves this regulation. What should we watch out for? What are you absolutely sure we can't do? Where might there be a little wiggle room? Yeah. And you have to build a trust with that person to be able to ask those questions, but you don't want to have them as a final reviewer who says, wait a second, you can't release this. That kind of touches on something else because we did, we pulled together a list of questions, digital transformation and continuous improvement. So, I mean, it sounds like making sure that you've got all the right people in the room helps you move faster rather than, like you said, waiting till the last second to like review this and realize that it's... Yeah. And you know what? It's interesting that you put it that way because, right, you might think, oh, well, if we move fast in the beginning, you know, just like (laughs) get to shipping, sometimes that can be the right strategy, but it isn't always. And so figuring out where you need to move fast and where you need to bring in more people to move more together and more strongly... Uh, there's a cliche, right? Uh, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Mm-hmm. A lot of government stuff is a go together. I talk about two stages a lot. So there's kind of showing what's possible thing that we do. You know, there are people who have never experienced launching a website in less than three years. And if a team of civic technologists can show them that actually we can put something together in a couple of months, in fact, we can change it on the fly while we're in a meeting with you. That can be a really important moment to help them shift toward a mindset that we can do things more nimbly. Mm -hmm. But we couldn't probably build a production-grade website for something that included, you know, really important personal information at the scale of a country in a couple of months. So then there's this whole doing what's necessary stage comes after showing what's possible to make sure that we work through the infrastructure and the security and the privacy. And I think that Technologists have to earn it a little bit to work into those areas of practice and those areas of the stack to be able to help do something not just at scale, but life impacting at scale. It's, it's such a different pace of doing things because when I go to work every day and I think about the things that I have to do, it is a very different pace. It's a very different way of operating. Neither is wrong. Neither is correct. Right. They're suited to different situations. Yeah. And ultimately, what's my goal? Who am I trying to help? What am I trying to accomplish? And remembering what that is. Very much so. What is one thing that you would want to leave people with, that you would want people to think about government a little differently? Government is as good as we make it. (laughs) And it's a quote from, uh, I believe, Barney Frank, that government is what we do together. And the lesson that I hope we all take out of the pandemic 
is that we need to be strong in a way that happens when we do things together. And uh, we should spend time and resources and, yes, money on a government that is first class. And technology is one of the things that we can use to build a government that serves us all and is inclusive and makes us all feel like we are really part of a robust civic sphere. But it's not the only thing. And so anything that you do that furthers that that robust civic sphere that's for all of us, mm-hmm. that helps. Tell me a little bit more about your book, because I would like to include, like, what inspired you to write this book? Uh, civic tech in this current incarnation, right? There have been people trying to improve government forever. But in this current incarnation, it dates back to around 2008, 2009. And it's been increasingly growing you know, participants and some successes. But if you look at you know, the changes that people really want to create through this work, you're looking at things that are going to take decades. And so we kind of need to put a flora under the field and say, here's where we are. Here are some things we've learned that we can just package nicely in a little book and you don't have to learn them through pain and hard work anymore. (laughs) You can just hopefully read this nice little package and get some of them. And then we can all kind of move forward to the next set of mistakes and things to learn. So my goal in writing it was really to kind of make everybody doing the work feel seen and also provide that object that somebody can hand to somebody who's interested in the field to give them the basics. And what do you see for that next generation? If you were to do a V2 of this book in another 10 years, what do you hope to see happen between now and that next moment of this is where civic tech has taken us? In 10 years, I hope that very many governments will have public service-minded technologists as part of them and that people will be working with technology that has non-commercial goals and socially good goals a lot more as a legitimate path in the technology industry too. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I really hope is that it will be a lot easier for people to come out and do this in the early parts of their career. Mm-hmm. It's often the paths are really hard right now. And there's a ton of coaching work that in some ways is suited to people who have a few years under their belt. And, you know, I hope in 10 years, you'll be able to say, yeah, I want to be one of the technologists who supports all of our benefit systems. And that that will be both something that you have a path to and something that looks great on your resume. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because right now I can't imagine, like, you know how to do a thing and you could do it at a private company or you could do it in this space, but that isn't something that I think about. Yeah. A space all of its own. I hope it actually won't need that much updating in 10 years because it mostly isn't about specific technologies. So I hope it either needs very little updating or is almost obsolete. (laughs) Because the field is more established. And one of the things I keep saying is part of the reason I wrote it is there really wasn't a shelf of books and I wanted a shelf of books. Mm -hmm. And so every time I talk to a group of civic technologists, I ask them if they have a book in them um, because we really need, we need that shelf of books and we need institutions and we need places that people can go to find out about the great work that's happened before, the field work that's happened before. We need those resources of a real field. In our notes here, somebody kind of mentioned and it's making me think, like, we're talking a lot about the people who are responsible for the technology, but I feel like there are other skill sets necessary, other people necessary to manage this technology, to think about how it's utilized, who maybe don't 
come from a technical background who are going to be working hand in hand? And how are those people involved and how should they be thinking about it in the future so that it's just a natural given that they're considering these tools that have become... Yeah. One of the recommendations that we made in a strategy project, I was recently on the California Department of Technology for the executive branch was certain technology basics should be part of management training, just like certain financial basics are now. It's a realm where anybody who's managing teams and managing spending on these kinds of things needs to have a basic understanding. Mm-hmm. And you know, one thing we didn't even get into is how government outsources a lot of technology now. And so it feels like this kind of separate realm and seeing it or, you know, whatever succeeds our current world of websites and apps based on databases be just part of the work stream of providing services or part of the work stream of implementing policies and regulations mm-hmm. without this extra sort of outsourcing and gap between the people who really understand the policy and the people who work on the tech. That is a future that we really want. Mm-hmm. And uh, your colleague is right about I can't call myself technical. And interestingly, civic tech has a really high percentage of designs and content strategists, as Yaz was saying, people from non-technical technology disciplines, maybe. is <laughs> a good way to put it. Yeah, for sure. Is there anything else you'd like to add to this? Having this perspective is something that we don't get very often. You are not the kind of individual we get to talk to and think about or see perspective of very often in the space that we're in. Interesting. I see. I would like to see those things come more together. Yeah. I, I think it's because we are such an early stage startup. Maybe in a couple of years, we'd be the kind of company where we're used to talking with a broader range of customers and are interacting with their use cases and, and how they operate. But where we are right now, we're very much kind of at our little cutting edge corner where we're focused with early adopters who are able to run quickly and be risky in ways that I think organizations like government, not quite yet. We need to be sure, sure, because we have an impact on people that really matter. Yeah, I mean, there's a place for for government taking a less protective risk posture on some things. But move fast and brings, uh, you know, if you break the unemployment system, it's not so good. Ouch. (laughs) Yeah. Back in the days when you could show up to conferences in real life, I remember being at a conference where people were talking about how public groups, you know, government groups were using existing technologies to reach their constituents, but how they also need to be careful about what they were doing is depending on what platform was, it could put those people at risk. And so, for instance, using Facebook as a tool to reach students, wonderful, but how much of that sensitive information is secure and not being used in a negative way. Everything that's happened with Zoom when school has gone online? Yeah. (laughs) that's been a really interesting set of questions. I don't think there were a lot of better options available. And on the other hand, it's not ideal in a number of respects. Yeah. And so what do you do? Because there are these teachers that need to reach their students. You know, you've got people who want to do things, but how do you help those people who may not have a technical background better understand the platforms they're trying to leverage so they can use free or very inexpensive things to accomplish the goal without causing issues and Oh, it's complicated. Yeah. But some of those building blocks, like Yaz was talking about with the US web design system, making those basic capabilities more available to the public sector, I think will make an underrated significant difference. 
for remote interactions becomes part of the public sector toolkit, that changes access to courtrooms, that changes access to schools, that changes access to all kinds of things. And we still have to be careful of people who just can't get to that access, but it's potentially a leap forward. Thanks for listening to this episode of Unintended Consequences. To help us observe how the unexpected success of a project can adversely affect the environment around it, please give this podcast a five-star rating on iTunes and promote it to every single person you know. You can learn more about LaunchDarkly at launchdarkly.com slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at LaunchDarkly. 